Welcome to the latest episode of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and I'm really excited to have this conversation because uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the intersection of belonging, which is always the uh, constant theme on our program. But we're also going to talk about that intersection of belonging with arts and culture. And in the background in my work here at Civic Commons, I've been talking to arts leaders, arts organizations, arts funders uh, in the last uh, six months to think about a, a campaign for 2024 where we can actually utilize arts and culture to create more belonging in the Seattle region. And so I'm really excited to have uh, three guests today join us. And what we're going to do is just have them introduce themselves. So we'll start with Joelle and then Leilani and then Randy. So Joelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, kumusta, aloha. I am Joel Barakiel Tan. I use all pronouns. And as of April 15th of this year, um, I would have completed my first year as the Wing Loop Museum's fifth executive director of our 55 year history. So I'm the new kid in town, new to Seattle area, but certainly not new to arts and culture where Prior to coming here, um, me and my husband were living on Hawaii Island where I was doing a number of social impact projects that were rooted in arts and culture. So a lot of economic development and kind of uh, gentrification kinds of prevention projects that were rooted in culture and arts. And prior to that, pretty long history in arts and public health in California, both Northern and Southern California with a long tenure at Yearbook One Center for the Arts for about 11 years. Um, so yeah, arts and culture is my thing. And, and prior to that, um, we'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, the work really started around culturally rooted arts um, in um, my early years uh, where I co-founded Los Angeles's Asian Pacific AIDS Intervention Team Health Centers, where um, at that time, a group of us ragtag artists, youths, um, responded to the HIV AIDS um, crisis happening. So uh, long history in arts and culture and public health. Awesome. I can't wait to dig into your origin story in a few few minutes. Yeah, thanks, Joel. And welcome to Seattle. I know it's your anniversary, so appreciate you being in our, our community. Yeah. Uh, next up is uh, Leilani. Leilani, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Leilani Lewis. I work for the University of Washington. So I work in the education space in higher education. Um, I am part of the diversity, the new wave of the diversity, equity, and inclusion directors movement position. And I do that in the advancement organization at UW. So that is my day job. And otherwise, I have always had my fingers and toes in quite a bit of different projects and and ways of you know contributing to the communities con that I care about and and contributing to um, the work of advancing social justice and making sure that our 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 work is moving forward and and we're continuing to fight against oppression and racism, uh, especially. So I do that in a number of ways, and one of them has been through my work and dedication in the cultural sector. So I'll talk about that more when we get to our origin story. Origin story. Awesome! Can't wait. Uh, last but not least, uh, Randy, tell us about yourself. Uh, my name is Randy Ingstrom. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, live in the People's Republic of Seattle, where I've been for about 25 years. And um, 
Currently, I own and operate uh, a collaborative consulting studio called Third Way Creative that operates at the intersection of cultural policy, creative economy, and racial equity. Um, working on projects from Ottawa, Canada to Grant Makers in the Arts, Western States Arts Federation, the Department of Commerce in Washington, and as of two months ago, the waterfront redevelopment for this for Seattle, our, our new front door. Um, you know, all that work is informed by um, and and powered by the eight and a half years I spent as the director of the Office of Arts and Culture for the City of Seattle. So my love, my love language is is public policy, um, and I think my passion work sits at the intersection of creative practice and and public institutions and sort of the civic realm. So we'll talk talk more about that as we go. I'm excited to um, hear from from my my fellow guests too. It's a pretty great group of people. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm so excited to to dig into y'all's origin stories because we ask this question pretty much 99% of the time to our, our guests. And the reason we ask this question is because when we uh, think about belonging, one of the major practices that builds belonging is storytelling, right? And I think when I ask our guests to introduce themselves, I do that because I want the guests to have power over how they identify and how they are, are, are recognized. And I think that's even more important to go deeper. This question is really like, what people, places, uh, events shaped who you are? Especially if you can speak about that in some reflection in terms of arts and culture would be great. But in general, I would just love to know like where you grew up, who you were, like where you you know where'd you hang out, what you what influenced you, etc. And so we'll go in the same order again. And so, Joelle, I would love to hear uh, your origin story, especially, you know, you gave us a little bit of a taste in your introduction, so I'd love to hear more. All right. Um, so, origin story, I can't help but think about um, superheroes, not that I'm likening myself to a superhero, but they tend to have origin stories. And really, the first thing that comes to mind is this term that I've been studying and fascinated with. And I think there's a theme to it would be anti-fragile, anti-fragile, anti-fragility, which is a term coined by Nassim Taleb, who's this, um, I think, pretty innovative thinker um, that suggests that it's it's beyond resilience. So often, you know, we come from um, marginalized communities and there's always this ideal of resilience. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience. So if resilience is where you come back from crisis or, or, or challenge, anti-fragility says you not only come back from it, but you improve because of it. It's like the muscular system. This concept runs across um, all aspects of our reality, from math to our physical body, um, to things in nature, to history. So what are things that actually benefit from challenge? So to that end, I would say, being born in Manila in 1968 amid Mar Marcos martial law into a working class family that was very anti-fascist and very vocal about it, um, I was kind of set up from the beginning in that sense in terms of what we valued around freedom and uh, kind of collectively and community led and directed anything, democracy, right? So we, we, we left and emigrated to the U.S. And I would say that the next point is the um, late 80s and early 90s, where um, in that pandemic, that HIV pandemic and the cultural war that came um, um, that was kind of came to a head because of that pandemic, 
was really my first, um, I've always, I consider myself a plague war veteran, my first tour of duty, um, where I think uh, a, a number of us then very young community-minded artists got together and without even knowing what public health really was, you said, what are we going to do? Our friends are dying. How are we going to stop this? How are we going to make it so that the people who need services gets them? And so we did it in the way we only knew how, which was to uh, make images and to craft messages and to convene events that were culturally um, informed, right? Uh, because there was so much stigma at that time around death and sex and talking about it openly and, and mortality. So we had to find our way. So we, we kind of went into public health the back door. And I think um, without ever meaning to, I think I would say that HIV AIDS was a movement led, started and, and perpetuated, um, advanced by artists. So that to me, I've never known the difference between <laughs> arts and public health because I, I know arts and cultural work to have its own intrinsic value. And I've also known us, I've seen us create infrastructure. I've seen us create jobs. I've seen us create um, all kinds of things um, in economy and in, in government as well. So we're, we're in all those areas. So I would say that that was my first pandemic, which um, I would say that I did a lot of that work at Yearbook One, a center for the arts. And, you know, working in a primarily uh, kind of white supremacist organization and trying to make that change, right, um, was really um, hugely impactful and doing with many different kinds of leaders, right, um, was also hugely important. And so I even remember at that time where the wing Luke already started to surface um, as a possibility because I was hired in, in the early aughts in a time when the arts was still when the idea of community engagement was still new, when it was really art with a capital A, it was about the ivory tower, it was about you know uh, about a lifelong kind of arts experience that usually excludes people who look like me, right? And so, what does it mean to make that shift from education to engagement? So that was the crucible. That was the moment, and it was with my wonderfully innovative and uh, very white. Um, executive director Ken Ken Foster, who's now running the USC Arts Leadership um, Organization, where we really did uh, a lot of sh a battle shoulder to shoulder, and, and an incredible team that did that work. So that was a huge moment, right, in terms of where it could go, and in terms of just the beginning of what um, you know mainstream or primarily white supremacist arts organizations can do, right? So how can they actually make that change? But um, the Wing Loop came up at the time because we were still arguing for a community-led and directed kind of arts program. And, and we said, hey, there's this little uh, museum up in Seattle that's already doing it differently. And so I'll just skip to, I, I just think, a year and a half ago or a couple years ago when the nominations, I was nominated for this role. Um, at that time, I was living in Hawaii Island where I was doing a lot of social impact projects like starting night markets, um, kind of arts that have a lot of arts and culture in them and lots of different things for our little town, especially during quarantine. And when I was nominated for this, I realized that it kind of felt like a bat signal. And that's what I, I talked about during uh, my interview was this felt like a, a, a bat signal because 
I really I realized that I wanted to throw my hat into the ring because there's only so many of us in our generation that were people of color that have had access to um, certain institutions and training. And I'm not saying I'm the only one, but I, I really felt like my commitment to social movement uh, made it so that it was uh, a thing that encouraged me to throw my hat in the ring. And through the process of learning about where the wing, you know, and, and affirming that the wing is not your, you know, your daddy, like typical museum. And in fact, it's a cultural treasure box. It's more like a Rubik's cube, depending on what you're looking at. Right, you know, a museum that uh, that's audacious enough to think about potentially uh, affordable housing as part of our future. I'm in, right? So it kind of it coheres with all of the other parts of me. I probably talk way too much, but I would just wrap it up probably by saying, if I were to follow, it would be like the trajectory would be uh, Philippines, Southern California, Northern California, Hawaii Island, and now here, Seattle. Awesome, I love it. It's great to, to hear more about you, Joel. Yeah. Uh, next up is Leilani. My origin story, really, I, I was born here in Seattle, but I was raised in Michigan in the 90s. So um, the, my sort of cultural sort of environment at the time had to do with the Pistons and the Bulls. And it had to do with the, the you know, the 90s in, uh, in the area just outside of Detroit, so in the suburbs there. And I was one of two Black children in my school. Um, the other child was named Lonnie, and he identified as he, him. So we had the same name. So that made my early schooling life very interesting and um, often grueling. Um, but I, I had this sort of interesting ex experience that brought me into the arts. So my mother got a job at the Detroit Institute of Art. Uh, I was a ticket taker. So uh, she often had to, and I was in... Uh, probably nine, ten, very young at, the, at that time. Um, she had to bring me along uh, a lot of the time. So I ran around the Detroit Institute of Art, which is a world-class museum. If you've never been there, it's absolutely phenomenal. This is where Van Gogh's self-portrait is. This is where you see um, the murals of Diego Rivera. Um, so I, I'm running and I'm seeing those those spaces um, tormenting, absolutely tormenting the security guards uh, running around um, loose and free, not knowing how it would impact me as I as I got into my later life. So moved back to Seattle after um, spending those formative years in Detroit. And um, art still very much a part of my my creative practice and and in my, you know, causing trouble years here and the getting into the the Raven house culture in Seattle at the time. Um, being into that, maybe, you know, doing some graffiti myself, running with the wrong crew, maybe the right crew. I don't know. Who's to say? But it was a crew. Um, and 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 having my fun that way. Um, but then, you know, I became a mother very young. And I I I had to pivot back to, and I didn't finish high school. I had to, I decided to go back to school. And um the thing that I just I was drawn back to studying art. And I just like I couldn't help it. It was back to that. So I'm the first generation of my family to go to school. I did not know about college or how to get into it. I had to kind of figure it out myself um, uh, and with my daughter. So worked that out, got back in, started in community college, went to Seattle University, and then got involved in a project called the Northwest African American Museum Project at the time. 
Um, it was not, it was supposed to be at this site, the Coleman School Building. And I hooked up with the person at the time who was running a docent program, Brian Carter. He was supposed to be running some things there at this project. And I was very green and I had just graduated. And long story short, I get a job about three months before the doors open at the Coleman School building over in 23rd and Massachusetts. And that's where my career in the arts began. I, I can't say that, you know, I, I, I just, there's nothing that I learned in school that had any anything that centered community in this arts sort of conversation. The nucleus of my of my understanding was the artists and it was what they had produced. And these were the things that you wrote about and you sort of studied and, and did and was, you know, there was some rigor and in, in understood how to research and nothing about community. And my practice at the at the Northwest African American Museum had everything to do with community and everything to do with connecting community to a space and to the work. And so once that sort of clicked for me about five years into working there, um, it was a lot easier then to make these associations between what we were putting on the walls, who are we inviting in, and how we could create something that was um, brought people together, that created this connection. And that was nothing I learned in school that was all practice. And that was all sort of in my own, um, uh, you know, a lot of it, it, it all ties back to you. So in, in my own um, ways of wanting to experience belonging and my own ways of wanting to connect, you know, I, I had a very different experience than a lot of my peers, um, especially in the museum world. Um, coming in and not having, you know, not having a legacy family of education, not have, I was raised by a single mother. Um, I was a, a, a mother, a single mother myself, very young. So I had I had different experiences. So in my longing to connect with community, I think it was easier for then uh, me to then practice this community connection work and and practice in uh, culture cultural spaces and using the cultural space as a text for for that dialogue to happen in physical space. So that was really. Um, that shaped a lot of who I was. And I learned from people who taught me about, you know, the beloved community and how to practice, um, how to work with people and heal, uh, how to create a space of healing. And that was a, a, as a radical act, as a, as a, as a way to counter um, societal sort of um, the, the, the oppressions that people experience every day and how to transform a museum into that space and why can't a museum be that space and why, why not and why not make it that space if we have if we have that control and especially for people um, not just people who are like black people african-american people and and our indigenous <laughs> folks and alaska native folks and what true partnership was so i had real experience. I, I started to get experience in that and what that means. And I messed up and I made mistakes and I was forgiven and I was offered the opportunity to do it again and, and, and mess up and come back and do it better and be better and make myself better and give other people dignity and space for them to mess up and them to come back and do better and 
and really understand that that's that's the connection. That's what that's what it is. It isn't about somebody being perfect and this art being perfect and these folks being excellent and everyone having this sort of divine experience. It's everyone being kind of messy, crazy, wonderful, hectic, terrible, sometimes humans and loving in that space anyways and being connected to creation and, and allowing that space for creation. Because that's that's what I've seen people, artists do. They've been They've had they they have their experience, and the more that we open that space for them to create, or us to create, the better they come out. They 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 create something, and they can speak to that sadness or the the pain or that they their the the you know the fact that we live in this racist culture and society, and we needed that, and the stories needed that, and the kids needed to see those stories, and so I don't know. There's just a lot there that I was able to learn and manifest. And I'm able to bring to a uh, higher education, you know, environment in part. Um, so I've kept my, you know, like I said, I've kept my fingers and toes in some things. I've served on the board of, I think, Shunpike, the um, Northwest African American Museum, Seattle Arts and Lectures, been on a number of advisory boards. Um, I won an award for Emerging Arts Leader in 2017. Uh, that was a truly, truly high, true, like highlight and true honor. Um, to, to have that experience. And so, yeah. Last but not least, uh, Randy, I would love to hear your story around arts. I guess there's a few like significant places that, that tell the story. I mean, I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, also remember the Bulls Pistons also grew up in the eighties and nineties. Um, and I think uh, Chicago is a great place to be from because it's a very sort of working class city. That's, big and international, but not full of itself, at least as that's how I perceive it. I probably have a romantic uh, vision of it because I grew up there, but um, you know, it gave me a lot of good work ethic traits, attributes, and it can sort of reminded me not to get full of myself, which are things I try. I try to work hard and I try not to be full of myself still to this day. Um, and it's also a very, very segregated place. And I got kind of obsessed with public housing when I was in high school because I read a story about a seven-year-old kid that got shot on his way to school in a housing project. And I was like, how does that? I mean, this is back when that was an unusual thing in America. So a time before. Um, and I, I, you know, I, got, I studied the history of public housing in Chicago and why things were the way they were and started to understand the links between public policy and city planning and race and class um, and and the really harmful ways in which um, decisions made by by governments over a long period of time led to a series of very predictable outcomes for people. Some communities had their wealth and labor extracted, and that uh, wealth and labor was given to other communities. And I, my dad grew up really poor, and my mom grew up really wealthy. And spoiler alert, their marriage didn't last very long. But um, but I got I got to exist in both worlds and see that inequity sort of from the from the back seat of the car literally, um, and I was like, man, there there has to be like a better way to structure a, a city, a community. And I also grew up like Leilani, running around museums. My grandma was a volunteer docent at the Art Institute in Chicago, and I spent hundreds of hours in that museum. Um, I also felt like it was really pretentious. And it didn't, you know, uh, I was listening, like staying up late at night, listening to B96 as house music was being born in Chicago and like became obsessed with a different kind of arts and culture scene that was happening in the city. And 
um, was really lucky that the rate, the high school that I went to had a radio station. This is in the mid nineties and, uh, early nineties. And through that radio station, I found the music library and through the music library, I found this like underground river of like culture and music, um, house music and hip hop and punk rock and indie rock and what was later going to be called grunge. And so much of that music was coming out of the Pacific Northwest. And, um, Seattle was just having a moment, you know, 92, 93, 94, uh, the, the movie singles had come out like, and I, there it was, it was this young city that I felt like it wasn't too late for. So I fell in love with this idea of Seattle being a young city that's, that could maybe make different choices. So it wouldn't end up a, a Chicago, um, or a Dallas or a New York or a, any of the other cities I had spent time in or Detroit. Um, and so I wound up in Olympia, Washington at the Evergreen State College, which was the most non-Chicago place I could have ever landed, a public, a public college, liberal arts college with no grades. Um, and I uh, dismantled and reassembled my brain through political economy and political theory and studied a lot about sort of modern political infrastructure, learned a lot about nonprofit management. Um, and I got to run the student arts council when I was uh, a junior at, at the school. And I'm, I'll always be proud of the fact that I spent more money producing concerts, raves and hip hop shows at Evergreen than I paid in tuition. Um, so that felt like a win. And from running the student arts council and producing all these concerts and events, I got asked, I got tapped to run the radio station at, um, at Evergreen appropriately enough called chaos, which had recently broken bands like Nirvana and bikini kill. And you know, those, those bands were all coming out of Olympia at the time, a little bit before I got there. Um, so Olympia was a fascinating place to be from like Leilani, a lot of time in the house rave hip hop scene in Seattle in the say mid, mid to late nineties. And then, um, wound up in Seattle, uh, right after the, after the Y2K, uh, I started an artist live work project with a bunch of my friends. Cause we, you know, this was like uh, when the first dot-com bubble blew up in Seattle and we were like, this might be the last chance we have to have ever afford housing in this city. How quaint and adorable that is now in retrospect, like we were saying that in 2000, but a group of friends and I bought a property on Beacon Hill collectively that would become known as stronghold. And I have lived there for 21 years this month, 21 years on Sunday, I think. Um, and, you know, the eight of us, 10 of us collectively renovated these four houses. Tons of people have come and gone over the years, but it's still here. And the idea was it would be a fortress for the arts and you could build uh, equity and stability by owning where you lived. Uh, and, you know, we've been able to have people have left the project and taken the wealth they've generated by living here and started new homes in Europe and in Vashon Island, the Europe of the Puget Sound. I don't know, just making that up. I don't know if the Vashon's really the year for the Puget Sound. But anyway, I, I think um, Olympia gave me a lot of my values. Chicago gave me a lot of my work ethic. Stronghold really gave me the, the clarity that community is a verb. Um, community is not a passive thing. It's something that you have to work for. It's something that's dynamic and it's in motion all the time. And we were building community while we were physically building houses and I like remain friends with kids I met at the bus stop who used to just hang out at the bus stop every day. It's a, it's been a very transformative experience. And I really fell in love with this neighborhood. I live in Beacon Hill. Um, I think it's the greatest neighborhood on earth. I'll never leave here. And, um, and I really, you know, I fell in love with Seattle. I remember 
when I, the first time I ever saw a mountain was out the window of the airplane when I flew out here for college and I saw Mount Rainier, you know, the mid, the Midwest is a very flat place. And I said to my mom, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. And she said, what? And I was like, no, I, I think, I, I think, and I did, I mean, and I will. And I sort of, I was all in, um, years later, what, this is when I met you, Frank. And when I met you, Leilani, I was really, really pri- privileged to be the founding director of the Youngstown Cultural Arts Center in the Delridge neighborhood of West Seattle, where I met and a huge number of really remarkable and inspiring people, most of whom are still dear friends to this day, and uh, took an 80,000 square foot abandoned historic elementary school and turned it into three stories of low-income artists live workspace and a 25,000 square foot cultural center on the ground floor that served young people in the neighborhood. Eventually, the young people in the neighborhood were the programming committee that would decide what happened in the building. They actually, we gave them direct control of the facility they were using. and. Um, those kids have gone on to do amazing things as well. Um, Youngstown was a program of a larger nonprofit called the Delridge Neighborhoods Development Association, which built affordable housing until it stopped building affordable housing. And then their economic model sort of careened off of the nonprofit highway. And uh, in 2011, I had to leave. I chose to leave because the board and the executive director weren't willing to face the economic reality that was staring down the organization. So I quit my job with no plan, which is generally not a great idea, but that's what I did. And I found my way for like a year and a half into consulting, so the accidental consultant, and worked on the Washington Hall project and 12th Avenue Arts and Feast and a bunch of really important things that are still happening today, Central District Forum for Arts and Ideas. Um, And, I should also say that when I was at Youngstown, I got appointed to the Seattle Arts Commission, which is the advisory body that advises the mayor's office and the council on cultural policy. And so I had this interesting six-year period at Youngstown where I was on the ground with community, like building programs in real time. And like, I felt like a total imposter, but like on the Arts Commission, advising the city on how they could do things that would be more responsive to what communities wanted and needed. Um, and then... Um, I did the consulting thing for like a year and a half. And then I got a call on my birthday, August, 2012 to ask if I'd be interested in the director job at the office of arts and culture, which was a surprise. But, um, I, I thought, I mean, can I still, I wanted to run for city council at the time. And, uh, and they, I said, can I run for city council next year? And they said, no, we'd like someone who would do this long-term. And I was like, next year's an election year. What do you mean long-term? But whatever. Um, I took on the office and it was one of the best and most important decisions I've ever made. And um, we grew the department quite dramatically. Um, A huge commitment to racial equity, which I think the staff championed before I got there, but didn't have leadership support for. So we we went all in on the city's commitment to race and social justice. And uh, we saw our department grow by tens of millions of dollars and our staff grow by dozens and started the first cultural space program, cultural space affordability program in the country, restored arts education to Seattle public schools, turned the third floor of King Street Station into a cultural hub for artists of color. Um, And then the pandemic hit. And uh, I saw government do the most inspiring work I'd ever seen it do from about March through May. And then it absolutely broke my heart after George Floyd got murdered and the choices that I think we, um, as a city, as, as a public, institution made. Um, and I, I think what I learned from the pandemic was that the institutions that we that govern us, the government, nonprofits, philanthropy, capitalism, 
they're not built for this moment and they're not built to serve us. Um, and so I started Third Way Creative as a way to sort of explore in real time new models and new ways to bring about policy and systems change and new ways to try to reconfigure the inputs that um, that seem to control where and how we spend our time and energy and center community and center uh the the synthesizing of multiple viewpoints to create a better outcome it's all sort of an act of like civic and cultural djing like you're trying to take two sources and bring them together and create a better out uh, better outcome i love it i love it it's all about sampling all the different things putting them together in a new way recently the u.s surgeon general uh, released an advisory about the impacts of loneliness on society outlined six pillars to tackle this, to create more social connections. You know, the first one is like infrastructure. Uh, this is around like policy, volunteerism, libraries, public transportation, green spaces, public spaces, etc. The second was pro-connection public policies. How do you reduce disparities in connection? I think this is something that you all have had your hands in, in many different ways. Public health, we've talked about public health. Uh, Joel talked about it. We know the impact of public health uh, on social isolation and being supported by healthcare professionals who not just take care of our physical bodies, but also our spirits, our souls, our mental uh, bodies as well. Um, the four about the limit of uh, digital environments, like how can that, how can that can distract us, that occupy our bandwidth and make us feel worse about ourselves. Fifth is deepening the knowledge, just doing more research, getting more research on this uh, idea of loneliness. And then six, he talked about the culture of connection in America. How do we cultivate values of kindness, respect, service, and commitments to one another? Um, and really, to me, that just you know kind of screams belonging, right? How do we create more belonging in our society? So my question to you all, what role does arts and culture play in creating this culture of connection in the region? You know, I would love you to answer that question in terms of like, how do you think arts and culture can do that here? But also, you can also talk about if you know, arts and culture, you've seen that happen to yourself personally. I think that advisory to me, it sounds like a call to action is in, in, in terms of public policy. Like what, what can be set up? What are the infrastructure? What would be a caring um, uh, social support? What would, what would indicate care and connection for people? And, and I think that what I see in arts and culture, like I said before, when I, you know, when I was learning in school is that the nucleus was the artist and the, and the artwork and not the community and not the, the people. And I think that that recentering or recentering education, there's a lot more education around centering communities and what that looks like and how to do that. I think that's going to help um, people in this sort of pro-social movement that I learned about mostly from, I um, no we're name dropping here, but Sandra Jackson Dumont and creating connection and 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 building that where the 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 art is is piece of it and what the art is telling us is 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 a as a part of this and you're a part of this and you're connected to this. And this story is not above you. It's not over here in this ivory tower or this elitist institution. It's right here connected to you. And the stories are yours too. And these people who are, you know, the artists who are that the Astor Gateses are telling stories that are relevant to to you too, and this is how you plug in and how you connect. So I learned a lot of that. Um, the ways that we practice, so the practitioners and the people that work closely with um, institutions that can be somewhat distanced or disconnecting, can really activate 
pro-social spaces and build on that those remedies and contribute to this sort of symphony of of effort that happens with a city and that happens with a community uh with with the culture the things that are happening with Wanawari right now the things that are happening you know with art noir and midtown and the way that um exceptional people are like Vivian Phillips and others are bringing people together really trying to activate those spaces that's going to be a, that that's that, art is such a great I mean that's just a great apex for all all of that right like that can happen there I think for me and I think that the pandemic made me much rawer in that I am just now pretty open. I'm like, want to experience connection. I'm like, hey, yes, I want to do that. Yeah, I want to do a podcast. Yeah, I want to connect with people a lot more. A lot of my walls are down because um, we had these, you know, these systemic walls up, like really up for us um, because we couldn't get each other sick. But um, art for me, when I was, you know, I describe myself as sort of a lonely kid in that I really was um, on my own in that museum. And, and but I also, you know, the, the, the artwork was company for me in a lot of ways and told stories about loneliness and the raw, the, the ugly parts, not the beautiful things, not all the, you know, happy times, but that's what I think art does. It kind of exposes some of this, this uh, the other parts that are that are difficult, that are challenging, that are isolate. What isolation is, and in that you find connection, right? Because all of this artist is, knows <laughs> isolation. They know that the struggle. Um, they know what it means and what it looks like. So this is such. It's such so important to have that sort of exposure. I think not just to art to itself, but to the community and and to ultimately inspire other people to tell their stories. Um, in whatever medium and whatever the way they choose and make that just as available as possible is going to help with this. People find the connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can be lonely together in that way. I like that. I think it's so true. Like the way that um, when we think about the nucleus that you talked about, like arts, the artists and the art, but like, you know, if you think about art as like uh, something as like a reflection or an idea that an artist puts out there in whatever medium, I think the art comes alive when people witness it and people witness mm-hmm. it from different lived experiences because people receive that art, that music, that play in their own experience and it's different for everyone, right? But the totality of those experiences or the totality of the loneliness or totality of what those emotions are, that creates the real power of arts and culture, right? Because it's not just a two-dimensional thing it's actually three-dimensional and the dimension the third dimension actually happens with interaction of people and their own experiences they bring into that so you know that's what makes art i think really exciting because when you hear about it and you talk about it with someone else who has a different experience than you that art is much fuller and richer and then our connection to each other is much fuller and richer it right. is. It is. And it, I, you brought, you touched on something. I just want to say, you know, you touched on Octavia Butler and Adrian Marie Brown and those folks. And I know of Octavia Butler, you know, bridging across hierarchy and actually reject, who rejected hierarchies and labels and just was adamant about that in her writing mm. as a way to build connection as a solitary writer, as a self-described lonely and introverted writer herself, you know, that's, a lot of her work is about belonging. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's just incredible, as is Adrian Maria Brown. It's just an incredible futurist. So. Yeah. Also, you know, for the listeners, if you just want a great uh, a way to, like, just enjoy, like, life in all of its dimensions, uh, just go on Adrian Marie Brown's Instagram and uh, watch all the memes that Adrian Marie Brown presents because they are all pure gold. Yeah. Randy, uh, same question to you. Yeah. Well, I'll offer like a micro example, a macro example, and a mezzo example. The micro, I, I think a lot about the campaign during the pandemic of public art comes to your front yard, where 12 um, artists from different neighborhoods were commissioned to create artwork of like pro-social and public health messaging on yard signs. And those yard signs were distributed all over the city. And they became this like, it really took on a life of its own. Um, and it, 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 you know, just these messages about like, you're not alone, stay home, stay safe. Like um, it was really, really impactful. Just the work of artists being able to translate vulnerability and hope and possibility um, at a time when everything felt completely uh, out of order and, and, and out of, out of control. Um, and similarly, I, you know, KEXP, started playing a really different role in my life during the pandemic um, when they were, when they did the whole, you're not alone campaign. Um, and, you know, I think art and music and literature straight up saved lives during the pandemic. I think that that isolation um, that I think we're still wrestling with and that I think is going to have permanent effects that we haven't even fully wrestled with. Um, I saw artists and um, a radio station very explicitly lean into connection through their work in a way that I saw, I thought was really powerful to me. That's belonging. When I think about it at a macro scale, post in a, in a I don't know, for post pandemic, I don't even know what that means. I think we're post isolation. So we're back out doing all the things and hopefully we'll be all right. But I think about the role, I think about the way in which all cities are different now. So I don't think office workers are coming back. I could be wrong about that, but I'd be willing to bet just about anything I have that we're done with the 40 hour, five day a week commute downtown to sit at a desk thing. So then there's all this panic about like, what, so what is the future of downtowns? And I think the future of downtowns is about culture. Um, Eric Takashita, a a friend and colleague says culture is what we do around here. And um, I think culture and art, as a way to foster civic imagination, as a way to build a narrative and tell a story of place and who we are and how we show up, as a way to advance equity and really confront the complex history that we all have and that we all share um, and build a better story going forward. I think that's those are the pillars of urban planning for the next 50 to 100 years. And I think culture is going to be central to the strategy of the reimagination of downtowns. And it's going to be central to what we do with all these abandoned office towers. And I think the mezzo example I'll offer is the waterfront where I've had the privilege to work over the last um, couple of months and for the next couple of years, you know, we're going to reopen the front door of our city uh, to the water. That's, that's been the, the portal to Seattle for its, its whole history for tens of thousands of years and 8 million people a day are going to come to this park because it's going to be the most beautiful public space that we've created in a generation or, or several. Um, what do we do with those 8 million people? How do we circulate them around our community? How do we build 
tributaries and 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 river deltas to bring them out to, to other corners of our city? How do we use transit and pedestrian corridors and bike infrastructure to get people not just downtown to experience culture and place, but then back out? How do we get them to the wing? How do we get them to UW? How do we get them to the Black and Tan Hall in Hillman City? Um, I think there's a, some really exciting possibilities in our future where culture becomes central to belonging and belonging is the way that we reimagine our, our downtowns and our neighborhoods. And it's not transactional vocation that drives your participation in daily life. It's a connection to other people, uh, whether that's through a pickleball game or a concert or a marching band or a Kraken game or a you know, a, a theater experience, a, a, a museum show, whatever it is, you're experiencing that together with other people and you're creating connection, you're creating community. Wow. Which I think this is really amazing that you've talked about a couple of things. I love your language of like using rivers as an analogy of like, how do we build a downtown and like this idea of tributaries and how do we bring, create these, you know, organic wayfinders for people to find that, you know, our city encapsulates so much more than just downtown and that that's the front door that the waterfront will be the front door and there's so much more to explore so many more rooms uh i've actually reached out to uh john in the morning uh john richards at kxp because his you know they're not his they're you're not alone campaign that you know happened during the pandemic you're right you know i think randy like it definitely saved lives because people were able to reach out and connect through this radio show um, to talk about, you know, stories of sadness, stories of grief. And, you know, John took his own story and he, he tells that story as well in that show. And I've actually, you know, we've reached out to him because we want to do that, you know, stories of belonging, right, through KXP. How can we partner with them? How can we get people to share their stories of belonging? Uh, the next podcast I'm actually doing is about downtown, right? I'm going to have Yoon Kang O'Higgins, who you know very well, um, who runs, you know, the public programming at the waterfront. He's a good friend of mine. We're going to have uh, Rico Caradongo from the Office of Planning and Community Development at the city. And we're going to have uh, John Scholes from the Downtown Seattle Association, right? And I think they're going to have similar and different ideas around what downtown can be and should be. And that's going to be a main question. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, definitely tune in in a few weeks after we you know, produce that podcast. You know, this would be a fun podcast to listen to this one. And then that one, back-to-back, back, that might be a kind of a fun way to spend two hours, you know, on a long commute, potentially. Awesome. Uh, Joel, last but not least, I would love to hear your response to those questions. No, I wanted to, to thank you, Frank, uh, so far. And, and really, uh, what an honor to have this conversation with Leilani and Randy. And really to the question of... <clears throat> You know, the role of arts and humanities and your compelling uh, um, report on loneliness. I, I'll just kind of widen it a little bit and just say, you know, and, and maybe address the role of arts and culture from the way what I've been seeing in terms of contributing, contributing to a well society, right? What is the role? How does that arts and humanities? So this is something that I've been obsessed with my entire life. And I also want to recognize that we are in this moment, right, where there's a big seismic system shift, right? And particularly the note of uh, there's a leadership transfer that's happening from one generation to the next. There's a huge class of freshmen uh, leaders across cities, across the nation that are uh, more representative of the now and the next, 
of the nation and the globe, correct? Okay, so if that is the premise, here are some points that I think uh, um, are really fascinating in this time, both personally and broader, and that is that in this new class of new leaders who think differently, maybe coming from Gen X and younger generations, there's this idea, what, what seems to be falling apart is this notion of the Cartesian split, of all, like that arts is separate from public health, that's separate from, from government, that's separate from policy. And us kind of new freshman leaders, in, in many ways, it is not a new concept. I, I come from, and it sounds like from Leilani's experience, that we come from, especially for BIPOC and um, organizations and networks and families um, that have had a marginalized status where we come from an integrated place. And then we go into mainstream spaces and we're having to do the work of reintegrating for the powers that be, who, have, who created systems that were not, um, were not integrated um, and, and really not, doesn't cohere with the way we live, right? So we're, we're going back to the future in many ways and that Cartesian split, that illusion that there is a separation between the internal and the external and that separation between each other is core. Secondly, I have to just wonder about the, the archetype of not only the artist, but the cultural worker, usually the queerdo, the queerdo in the village. I and mean, I'm not talking about sexuality. I'm just talking about that one, right? Like, and that the power of that from, from, from non-white, supremacist, you know, non-white supremacist uh, perspective is that, you know, what, what is the value of that liminality? What is that value of that visa, the ability to move between worlds and identities, right? You know, they've been our ministrants, they've been our politicians, they've been our leaders, but in, 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 the, in the reverse world, the world we're coming out of, um, you know, we're, we're just being introduced and recognized, right? But we've been here, We've been here, but that artist and that cultural worker can move between worlds. And that is what we need right now is that ability to develop new language, new thinking um, and stuff uh, to pick up stuff that's already there, but just put together in a way that works for us now. Um, I think about BIPOC movements and I'm gonna speak directly just to my colleagues of color. And I wanna ask what is beyond critique? What is beyond critique? How do we step into the now and the next while without, without denying the histories that we've come from, without minimizing the realities we still live? How can we, how can we more step into the healed and healing ways of being, right? Um, the idea that we are already in a time where um, kind of the mixed race demographic is is the, is the largest growing demographic, and that that our stories, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren will look very different from us. But what is important to carry forward? But ultimately, it's like what is beyond critique, and how can we step into an integrated sense of joy? How do we how do we temper the terrible beauty and the paradoxes? that make us who we are, right? But, you know, so can we step into a healed and healing space um, and a perspective that, that is not problem saturated, right? That instead redreams 
and who gets very specific and quantifies the policies, the economies, and 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 the realities we want to create for our now and next. Um, I would say that there is something clearly about how arts and humanities drive policy, economy, and health. And if I were just to draw that, I'm sure Randy's draw like we 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 all have some similar drawing of all of that ways, but art at the center of that. And then um, and then while we are leaving this old world, a, a place-based organization like the Wing Luke Museum that is more of a I would say uh, more of a cultural treasure Rubik's cube, where depending on what you're looking at, it's what it is, but we're certainly just not your kind of average museum. I think that on the one hand, you're right, there are more asynchronous, digital, kind of non, kind of pre-quarantine world we're moving into, but I also think there's the paradox of the power of presence in place, particularly the CID in this time where it is um, endangered, right? The sound transit, the site shelter, and then you just add that to at least 100 years of disaster gentrification and at least 100 years forward in terms of the impact and cleaning up from that. We must now talk about the, the power of presence in this neighborhood, not just folks of the Asian diaspora being in the ID, but anyone primarily of color, right? This was this was a legacy. This was the lemonade we made from redlining. And rather than being a problem to be solved, we need to re-message and, and, and look at the neighborhood as, as a cultural treasure to advance, while the other Chinatowns and other districts of color around the country are dying. Seattle actually has an opportunity to have the bragging rights have the only thriving cultural districts of color in our area. So how can we be not a problem to solve, but a treasure to, to cherish and to advance? And then I'll just end with just, if, and, and again, back to this idea and the reality that a new group of leadership is coming in. I'm so excited because you know what will come into it are our, our home concepts of Kapwa, of Umoja, of Malama, of all the things that's, that actually have the language and the kind of uh, the cultural heft that is about integration, aloha, right? Like all of those things are not just the thing you, you have on a little t-shirt. Like when you actually have the leaders who embody that, oh, we're in for it. We're in for a wonderful time because we're also in for uh, a, a, an incredibly polarized time in 2024, right? So this is the moment because you talked about superheroes where, you know, the X-Men and the League of Superheroes, we're going to really have to get together and do this because, listen, you know, anti-drag bill, Roe v, they're not playing. It's on a schedule. So ultimately, I keep thinking, great, let's have these conversations. But when, are, where are the think tanks now? Like this, they put all of these crazy things to keep us in the past on schedule. They didn't just say, oh, let's do anti-drag right now. There is a schedule and an economy behind it. Where's us? Where's us, right? Mm. In the ways that Baird Rustin and Dr. King, like all of them went to, they had their own retreat centers and think tanks. If I can remember the retreat center, I believe it was in Tennessee. Like. The, so we need more infrastructure 
long-term, medium-term, short-term, and we don't quite have it. We're, we're, we're still too reactive. Mm. That's a whole lot, but in many ways, it was inspired by what my colleagues are talking about. <laughs> Well, that's the power of this this uh, gathering, right? And this is this podcast. You know, now that you've mentioned it, without me realizing it, is me building infrastructure, is Civic Commons building infrastructure, right, for creating pathways for people to connect with each other who may or may not know each other, but who are working in similar currents. And I think the current of arts, when you think about that triangle, is definitely arts and culture should be at the center because how do we reimagine? How do we go beyond critique? How do we go beyond anger? Right. And how do we? How does justice and love merge? And in this, in Civic Commons, we've released this thing called the, the the Compact for Belonging. This is like a social contract that we've created over multiple years of conversations with people. And the three main values that community members have come up with with us is love, justice, and belonging. And I think justice demands a change, and love demands that people actually, you know humanize and care for each other but you can't policize that right you can't create a policy that makes me care about my neighbor but you can make me make me a policy that keeps me safe or protects my rights but we need both of those things we need both the policy and the relationship together bonded and i think belonging is that bridge and arts and culture is that bridge and that's why i wanted to have this podcast to have that conversation so i appreciate y'all uh, I appreciate my friend uh, Bobby, who always uh, donates his song and music to our intro and outros. And as we always say, uh, we hope that you always feel that you belong. And we will all see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.